The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Variety Channel. For more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericavariety.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the hosts or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Good night. Welcome to the Catherine Zox Show. This informative and entertaining show will start your mornings off on the right foot. Here's your host, Catherine Zox, your social worker with the microphone. Good morning, I'm Catherine Zox, I am your social worker with a microphone, and you're listening to The Catherine Zox Show on VoiceAmericaVariety.com and World Talk Radio. Joining me this morning is author John Hope Bryant. His new book is How the Poor Can Save Capitalism, Rebuilding the Path to the Middle Class. Welcome to the show, John. Honored to be here. Thanks for having me. Uh, well, and you, you are doing God's work uh, amplified with a mic. I love it. That's right. Uh, you're absolutely right. So that's what we're going to do today on the show, and you're going to help us to do that, obviously. Um, and I, I want to repeat the name of your book again, How the Poor Can Save Capitalism, Rebuilding the Path to the Middle Class, and uh, also your founder and CEO and chairman of Operation Hope. But I think one of the things, because you and I were talking a little bit before the show, not too long, but, you know, the myth is, or I guess some of the, the myth is, well, the poor are the, are the problem, and capitalism, I think the Pope said it. Did he say that, that, capital, that our economic system is inhumane? And um, you say no. You say the poor can save capitalism. Um, so let's talk about the premise of the book, I guess. And did the Pope actually say that, that our economic system is humane? Uh, yeah, he said it, but it, uh, of course everything is context. He said yeah. it in the context of the current uh, form of capitalism. Uh, and the economic system is inhumane. And he's right about that. When you've got 3.5 billion people on the planet who don't have as much wealth as the top 85 uh, people on the planet, then that is an unsustainable system. Uh, as my friend Mayor Wellington Webb of Denver, former mayor, said to me, rich people need the poor if for, own, for no other reason than to remain rich. Uh, but the poor, ha- the poor, the working class, the teetering class, those who make $50,000 a year uh, or less, uh, folks are too much month at the end of their money, many of your listeners, uh, are, when, the, when they feel that this system is rigged, uh, that they can't get ahead no matter how hard they try, then they begin to give up on the system and give up on themselves, and, that, and that's giving up on America, and then we all lose. And that's, I think, uh, what uh, the Pope was talking about. For really, uh, Catherine, for for 80 years of our of America's last 100 years, we were obsessed with ideas from the automobile, Henry Ford, and making it a, an automobile uh, and then paying its workers enough to, to, to buy the automobile that they were making, voila, the middle class, to Ted Turner and CNN, and you can all these great idea factories that came out. And then as a result of that, yeah, they got rich and they, they became powerful. But in the last 20 years, Catherine, uh, we flipped it. And now people, you say, why are you a businessman? I want to get rich. Why are you on Wall Street? I want to get rich. Why are you playing professional sports? I want to get rich. We've, we've, we've switched the product for the byproduct. And whenever you do that, you've lost your storyline and you're done. It's not about the money, but we've made it about the money. And that's all about short-term gain, about what do I get, not what do I have to give. It's not about building anything. It's just about getting rich and getting paid. And that's what I believe what the Pope 
uh, was talking about. The Bible even suggests that it's not the money that's bad. It's the love of money uh, that's bad. So, so how do we reverse this? I mean, you know, this has been happening, obviously, in great strides over the past 20 years. So how do we change it around? I mean, what, what can we do, I mean, to, to make a change, to make so that... Well, well I mean, if, if the first thing we can do is give credit where credit is due right now. I'm not asking for charity. It, this book is very counterintuitive. In fact, I say in the book that if it's anything other short of revolutionary... Send the book back to me. In fact, if, it, if the book is anything short of also the memo that people never got on free enterprise and capitalism, send the book back to me. I'll give you a full refund. And there's no buts there. And, uh, uh, that, that, that we're already, the poor, the working class, are already saving the economy. You and me paying for coffee this morning. When we brushed our teeth uh, with the toothpaste, nobody gave us toothpaste. We went to the store and bought it. Uh, the, the gas station, we stopped to get gas. Uh, somebody's in the car right now listening to you. Well, they, they're paying a note on, on that car. They stopped, they stopped and got some breakfast along the way. Uh, they're at the office now, and they're dressed in a suit. Well, they paid for that suit. Uh, 70% of the U.S. economy is consumer spending. I'm sorry, it's consumer-driven, consumer spending. So it's not big business or big government. 70% of uh, this $17 trillion rocket ship called America's GDP is you and me making uh, pretty modest uh, transactions. Uh, and, uh, and people who make $50,000 a year or less take 80 to 90% of every one of their dollars and puts it back into uh, the economy, whereas those who are what you might call wealthy tend to keep uh, most of their uh, income. So that, that's number one. It's being saved already. Oh, let me be very specific. Automobiles. Um, uh, was it created as a toy for the rich? I mean, uh, uh, cell phones. <laughs> you remember that, that $3,000 of 10-pound brick that used to be on our shoulders uh, 10 years ago from Motorola? I mean, 20 years ago when cell phones first came out? Um, I had one. Uh, but now Africa will become the first wireless continent in all probability. They're jumping right over landline phones. And people who don't have running water have a cell phone. Well, well China did that, too. And they, yeah. that, uh, they, they just skipped all the wires and went straight to wireless. And, and actually, I think, wasn't that, a, what, 10, 15, 20 years ago? Uh, the, yes, the trend, the trend continues. But the, one of the wealthiest, I think the wealthiest cell phone company in the world is in China. And they're making money. They're doing well based on the average citizen having a cell phone, not the middle class or the wealthy class. And, and the restaurants were originally a toy for the rich. Not a toy. It was a luxury for the rich. Now you go into a gas station, you see a restaurant. Uh, until these things became commoditized, available to all of God's children, they had no market sustainability. So look around you. It's everywhere. You name something, and I'll, I, I will point to you how that was originally created uh, for a very limited population and only gained shareholder value when we all... I mean, the largest retailer in the world is not Neiman Marcus, it's Walmart. <laughs> so then, of course, we can talk about the other side of this, which, we, which is, I guess, really your question, which is the demand side, the ownership side, because that's how we get out of this mess. But the first thing we've got to do is to get our mojo back, get our self-esteem and our confidence in ourselves back, and that's by giving ourselves credit uh, for actually driving the largest economy on the planet. 
<laughs> so how do we do that? I, w- I want to be really specific because people are, you know, as we talked about before, we want to debunk some of these myths that, yeah. you know, capitalism is only for the very rich and the top 1%, and the middle class is struggling, the poor is struggling, we're not doing well. And as you say, we have that attitude, and as long as you have that kind of an attitude, you really it's difficult to go anywhere with it, That's isn't right. it? Yeah, well, half of poverty, and I, I detail this in the book, half of poverty is actually low self-esteem. It's, le- it's lack of belief in yourself, lack of confidence in yourself. If you don't know who you are in the morning, I keep saying, by midnight somebody's going to tell you. Uh, it, it, if I don't like me, I can't like you. If I don't feel good about me, I can't feel good about you. The second part of poverty, Catherine, is role modeling and environment. Um, why am I a businessman? My daddy was. <laughs> it's not rocket science. It's role modeling. Uh, why are you doing what you're doing? I don't even know your story, and I know your story. You saw somebody, maybe a woman, somewhere in your career, and said, wow, she's doing that. I can do that. We're all, by the way, is that, uh, I'm going to take a risk here. Catherine, is that accurate? Yeah, I would say that accurate. I've got a long story. That's another show, and I'll tell you that <laughs> yeah. we, can, we can do that another time. But, yes, I would say that is accurate. Yes, you need role models. You need mentoring, all of those things. Um, so, I, I agree with you, and that certainly was part of my journey. So if you grow up in an inner-city neighborhood uh, or a rural community, uh, but let's, say, let's deal with the, the, the typical version of poverty people see in their mind. An urban inner-city neighborhood, by the way, there's more poor whites in America than poor anybody else, so we're all in this mess together. But an urban inner-city neighborhood, and all you see are rap stars, athletes, and drug dealers. Then why, as symbols of success, why is anybody shocked or surprised that that's exactly what young people grow up wanting to be? It, they're not dumb or, or, or stupid. They don't wake up in the morning and say, ooh, let me d- be dumb and stupid and backwards and be a, 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 a pain in the rear end of society. They wake up being aspirational, but all they see is what they model. And that leads to the second point about environment. You hang around nine broke people, you'll be the tenth. <laughs> and then the last part of, of, uh, of, of poverty is it aspiration or the lack thereof. That's the hope factor. Uh, and uh, an opportunity. So, if you are missing all those things, those three, all three of those things, low self-esteem, lack of role models, uh, lack, a crappy environment, horrible aspirations, hope, and no opportunity, that's a traditional urban inner city black poverty, by the way. You're toast. You're gone, right? So your solution to the problem is the hope plan, the hope plan. and, and uh, the Marshall Plan I, for this generation. For this generation. As I understand it, it also has bipartisan support, yes. comprehensive program, and I just want to mention what it's called, Project, what, 5117, and it's yes. very specific and yes. outlined. So let's, uh, what, is the pro- what is the hope plan? Five million kids to make smart cools so kids want to stay in school. Uh, that's being co-chaired by Quincy Jones and Ambassador Andrew Young. These kids are dropping out of high school because they, we've not connected education with aspiration. Uh, you, know, you and I don't want a mortgage. We want to become a homeowner. Nobody, you know, nobody, wake, nobody goes to bed dreaming about a subprime 20% interest mortgage. Ooh, give me a subprime mortgage. They want to become a homeowner. That's aspiration. Nobody wants a car loan. They want a cool car. Kids don't want to lecture about grades. Um, they, they don't want to be told to eat their spinach. It has to be aspirational. So we're going to reconnect education to aspiration. That's five million, five million kids. Why five million? Because the book, The Tipping Point, proved that if 5% of role models every community stabilizes. And so if we're going after 100 million people to change their life, 5% is 5 million. That then, that then pivots 
into, we're already in 4,000 schools, by the way, so it's not dreaming. We've already touched a million kids. Then you, t- then you touch, you go into one million kids who go through Hope Business in a Box academies. Think about an economic energy uh, academy for young people. Give them a course in dignity, values, a course in financial literacy, language of money, a course in entrepreneurship. 25 businesses, Catherine, you can start for $500 or less. You know, John, I think you're talking about these kids um, you know, in, in inner cities and um, the 5 million youth, et cetera, but I think that most kids, just, just in general across the United States, don't have these skills. Of course. We don't teach, yes. whether it's even in, 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 in schools, uh, suburban schools uh, or schools that would be considered uh, you know, good schools, popular schools, but I don't think that we have those kinds of programs across the board, which is necessary. Kevin, it's worse than, it's worse than that. By, by the way, when, you, when major America has a headache, black and brown folks have pneumonia, <laughs> but we're all sick. <laughs> but, but it's worse than that. If you want to know, and then I'll get back to the, well, let me finish on the, on the uh, Business in the Box Academy. So then we, yeah. we do a pitch event for the kids in their auditorium. Think Shark Tank for kids. Kid gets two minutes to pitch their business idea. Go. Right? All the endorphins start firing in the kid's head for the first time. Somebody's looking at me, paying attention to me. We judge them, local business leaders, and when they, when they do a good job, Catherine, we fund them up to 500 bucks. And Gallup measures their, their uh, strength finders on the front end, so we know what they're good at, and then they, on the back end, they do the Gallup Hope Index to measure the outcome. So, uh, look, if you want to understand, in, listen, and I want your listeners now to think about this in their mind, you want to understand who the, the, the future football star is at their uh, middle school. The schools can identify those kids. They got them on the track. You want to identify who the basketball stars are, the baseball stars are. They can identify that. They have them on the track from middle school. You want to identify uh, high academic IQ. We've got a system for that. It's called grades. You want to identify Steve Jobs, Bill Gates of the future, the entrepreneurs, the, the success stories, small business owners, the, the people like you and me who create something, like you created this show. There's no system for that. We just... We just leave it. To, we just leave it to chance. <laughs> we, we leave the thing that drives the largest economy in the world to chance. It's ridiculous. Why do you think we've done that? I, I, because nobody gave. Well, great question. Because we never <laughs> got the memo. Right in 1865, President Lincoln. Uh, yes, he gave everybody emancipation. Right, blacks after the Civil War. Everybody seems to know that story. That's it. After that, March third. He signed the Freedmen's Bank Act, Freedmen's Bureau Act, which created the Freedmen's Bank. The Freedmen's Bank mission in 1865, Catherine, was to teach freed slaves about money. He thought the most important thing he could do after setting people free, free physically was to set them free mentally, emotionally, set their liberty free to participate in the system. He was killed two weeks later. The system fell, the bank fell in disrepair. Uh, and by the way, he'd also been bold and was going to give every freed slave 40 acres and a mule. He had put the bank across the street from the White House so he could see it. It was very serious for him. Uh, he wanted them to participate in the free enterprise system. We never got the memo. By the way, th- that's not just black people. Nobody got the memo. Pop your fingers, you're over 100 years. Then is Dr. King and my mentor, Andrew Young, 68. Dr. King says about poor whites, poor blacks, Latinos, Asians, Indians, and others, you cannot legislate goodness. And you cannot pass a law to force someone to respect you. The only way to social justice in a capitalist country is ownership. He was killed two weeks later. That was a poor, <laughs> that was a poor people's campaign. He never got to his first march in Washington. It's not like we got the memo, Catherine, and we screwed it up. We never got the memo. How does this system work? How does it, okay, let's give a visual right now. Uh, think about an inner city neighborhood uh, or a rural neighborhood or outside of a military, uh, uh, a military installment. Check casher next to a payday loan lender, next to a rent-to-own store, next to a title lender. 
next to a liquor store. That's not racism. That's target marketing. They are targeting a 500 credit score customer, period. And folks who live in these neighborhoods don't even know they're being what I call pimped. We're going to steal, we're going to rob those check cashers of their customers. That's the plan of 5117. That's a thousand Hope Inside locations inside of bank branches, inside of credit unions, grocery stores, retailers, government offices, moving credit scores to 700. Nothing Who's changes on your, your life team, John? Who's going to do this? Who implement? Who executes this, I guess, is what I'm at. The question is, we're, who is going to execute you know, you know the whole plan. The whole plan. We're already in 100 um, locations. We're already in SunTrust banks. We're already in Regions banks. We're already we're going into PNC Bank in Cleveland. We're already in Popular Community Bank. Uh, we're already in Union Bank in California. We're already in Bank of the West in California, and actually just now going into Denver. Um, uh, starting naming names, I get into trouble because I'm going to leave somebody out. Microsoft has, got, has got given us resources. Accenture Consulting is. I mean, this is not a dream. I mean, you go to somebody, your listeners go to Project 5117, and you will see a long list of parts. The Consumer Financial Protection Bureau has partnered with us as their outreach agency because they've said we are in more places than they are. So if we go online and we go to Project 5117, yeah. we will have all that information. Let them yeah. say whoever is listening is saying, oh, my, I want, you know, I want to. Either I want to be one of the banks that participates, or I want to yeah. be, you know, one of the recipients, or whatever. Is where do we go to? Yeah, go to operationhope.org. Keep it simple. Uh, and there's a map of all our locations that we're moving so we're moving so fast. The map can be a little out uh, out of date, a little behind us. But we've opened 100 locations in 250 days, like the Starbucks of financial inclusion. But they can also just email uh, lance.triggs at operationhope.org, l-a-n-c.t-r-i-g-g-s at operationhope.org. I'm getting very specific now to say where do I go to move my credit score. We, we, you know, half of employers today, Catherine, you probably know this already as a social worker, require a credit check before they will hire you. I mean, this is the new civil rights issue. If you don't understand the language of money today and you don't have a bank account, you're, you really are toast. And so moving credit scores 74 points in 10 months, we do that. Moving credit scores 120 months, 20 points in 24 months, we do that in these Hope Inside locations, inside of bank branches. And if there's a banker listening, a credit union executive or a grocery store owner listening and wants to this us in their location, just give us a call. So, yeah, we are, we, we're, this is a book not just about Ph.D., it's about being PhDs. We, we need people to do stuff today. Well, and, you said earlier on the show, and I guess we weren't on the show, but before when we were talking, you're a PhD also because, uh, as you said, you don't have a PhD in economics, right? Yeah. I mean, this is, this is and and here you are, obviously receiving all kinds of accolades and on the president's board and et cetera. So you don't need a PhD in economics to be a leader, a mentor, to do what you're doing either. Uh, correct. Well, I think one of the greatest compliments, I mean, the book is, is now number, last time I checked, it was number six or seven uh, globally on the issue of poverty and, and social sciences and blah, blah, on Amazon. And it was number six of all business management books in, uh, on Apple's iBooks, global, period, of all books. Uh, and here's a young black guy from South Central L.A. in Compton, California, who has a GED, uh, which Chris Rock, Chris Rock calls a good enough diploma. Uh, I've got a great degree in common sense. Um, but I got, by the way, I have all these honorary doctor degrees, and Harvard wants me to speak, and all, I go all these. I got degrees from all these places now because of my practical experience. But technically, I don't have the degrees that supposedly gives me the credentials to say this. Nor am I an economist. 
but this book is a bestseller in business and economics. And talk about something boring, something boring like money. You want to put a kid to sleep? Give them a traditional financial literacy course. I just think that we have got. But part of this is that I dare to dream big, Catherine. You Where did that come big. from, you, John? I'm, because you mentioned. All right, you don't have the degree, but you know you're very mo- obviously very motivated, and you know you as I said, you get all kinds of accolades. Accolades you've got it from the uh, University of Southern California School of Social Work. But where, like, where did it come from? Like you mentioned, you grew up in California because yeah. um, we need more people like you. Well, my, um, well, that's very sweet. Little Johns, right? But so, little Catherines, yeah. But talk to us personally about your where where does that kind yeah, of internal stuff come from? My, my, again, this should be inspiring to 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 your listeners because it's not these 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 answers are not sophisticated. It's my mother who told me she loved me every day of my life. Nothing changes your life more than somebody telling you they love you every day of your life, and you can do anything. And I believed it. And my dad has owned a business for 54 years. Now, I go into some detail in the book about the challenges also faced by my dad because he was not financially literate, so he could make it but couldn't keep it. But when I was growing up, I didn't understand all that, that other stuff. All I knew was my dad was amazing, and he was making, meeting, you know, meeting a payroll every week, and I was so proud of him. I still am. And so I'm a businessman because my daddy was. So uh, it, there's this, gro- this quote we use, there's a difference between being broke and being poor. Yeah. So when you get economic, back to your book, yeah. when you mention one of the, the the issues or the problems, self-esteem, when these yeah. kids don't have good feelings of self-esteem, it's almost impossible to move, move ahead, which, of course, obviously you did. Are you an only child, or do you have siblings? No, I'm, a, I'm the youngest uh, in my family of, uh, of three, uh, four siblings, uh, uh, two sisters, uh, one brother. Uh, oftentimes the youngest treated like the oldest, but they're all successful uh, in their right, their own right, none of them have been in the trouble. None of them have been arrested. You know, uh, j- but it, it wasn't. It was just. It was just great role modeling. And by the way, growing up in, the, I didn't know we were poor. I mean, I know we didn't have any money, but when I started my first business at ten years old, the neighborhood candy house and bummed forty bucks, bucks off my mother to do it, I thought I could do anything. And when I put the liquor store out of the candy business and made three hundred dollars a week. And then I found girls and lost the business. A whole other story. But when I made three hundred dollars a week at ten years old, nothing was going to stop me. And and that's the t- part that so the programs fifty one seventeen in some ways, Catherine, really uh, model and mirror my life story. We've just simply institutionalized and structured the thing that made me successful as an individual growing up. Uh, so we've taken aspiration and, and made it institutionalized hope. Did you ever, John, when you, I mean, you had support from your family, from your mother, your father, yeah. your mother told you she loved you every day. Um, was there anybody at any point who said to you, John, you can't do it, not in your family, but let's say in school, you know, once you got to middle school or high school, was there anybody or outside forces that sort of tried to put the damper on things? And if so, how did you, you know, respond to that? Yeah, I mean, basically, my whole neighborhood was saying uh, unconsciously, "You can't do it," because there was no exa- there was nobody in a suit in my neighborhood other than a detective, and it was a bad suit he was wearing. Um, the the only guy I ever saw wearing a suit, uh, and I'm ashamed to say that I didn't notice my father wore a suit to church on Sunday or Friday when he made payroll until later in my life. But the, it was a white, and I'm, taking, I'm saying this intentionally so that people know this is not about race. It was having to be a white banker with a white shirt 
a red tie, and a blue suit. So anybody can help you, right? It's not, it's, not about, it's not a racial thing. He came in my classroom and taught financial literacy and home economics. And I looked at him like he was from, from Mars. And I said, sir, what do you do for a living? And how did you get rich legally? And people laugh when I say that, Kevin, but I was dead serious. I mean, I didn't know anybody who had gotten rich legally in my neighborhood. It was all, you know, thugs drugs and drugs and, and yeah, and thievery. Uh, and pimps, and he said, well, I'm a banker, and I finance entrepreneurs. Now, Catherine, I didn't know what the heck an entrepreneur was, but on that day, I vowed to become one. Uh, If he was financing them, and it was legal, I was going to do that, and I was nine. I was nine. Changed my life. That then led to the next year, when I went to go with, it, with more confidence in my soul, went to go to the, the liquor store and told the guy he was selling the wrong kind of candy, and he said, go away, little boy, I've got a college degree. I said, that's nice. I've got cavities. I'm telling you, you're selling the wrong kind of candy. That confidence came from, you know, the, again, my mom and, and, and my dad. And so he hired me. I, I worked as a box boy at his place for, um, I didn't want to work at the counter. I didn't want a fancy job. I wanted to be in the back. So I knew where he bought his candy from. I, I quit three weeks later and went and bought the candy where he bought it. I was on the way to school. He wasn't. And I put him out of business. I put him out of the candy business through good, healthy competition. Now, next door to me was my next door, Tweet, neighbor Tweet, who was a local thug. And Tweet had a crappy family environment. But Tweet was brilliant. You know, anybody who's listening to your program who doesn't think that a drug dealer, a successful drug dealer, is brilliant, doesn't know what they're talking about. They're immoral. uh, They're unethical. Uh, they need to pay their special uh, debt to society, and there's a special place in hell reserved for somebody who sells debt to their own community. But it, they're not dumb. Uh, they understand import, export, finance, marketing, wholesale, retail, customer service, security, territory. These are illegal entrepreneurs who have crappy role models in a crappy environment. Unfortunately, George, my best friend, uh, who was an A student, I was a C student, by the way. He was a much better student than me. George didn't know who he was. He had crappy role models. Uh, and George hung, wanted to hang around Tweet, even though I wanted to hang around him. And George was killed uh, on a street corner with Tweet. <laughs> I don't remember how age old I was, but it had to be when I was 9 or 10-ish because I left there soon thereafter. But those are ex- some quick examples of, of really, I don't know of anybody who got out of Compton uh, uh, on my street other than me. I, I know people did, but I, I, the stories are not, you know, they're not many. They're not. I, I unfortunately don't know many stories because it, the 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 ex- reinforcement of you can't do this. There's no place for you. There's no success. It's got your name on it, and there's no examples of it. We're everywhere. So if you're going to be an entrepreneur, you're going to be a pimp. You're going to be into drugs. You're going to take any of those skills and get into the wrong business. Is that in that yeah, kind and, of an environment? Yeah, and there are no retired drug dealers. <laughs> <laughs> Okay, so you, it's prison, probation, parole, or death. Uh, so you got all these. Look, we're potentially, I told you this book is very controversial. We're potentially locking up the 20% of young people in inner city and low wealth and rural neighborhoods that have the potential to create jobs. The, 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 these thugs and drug dealers and gang organizers, do you know how much talent it takes to become a gang organizer? I mean, so versus just saying you're a bum. And, uh, and you're, you're a failure, we can say, look, you did a bad thing. You've done some bad things. You've made a lot of crappy decisions, and you've got to pay your debt for that. But, that, but because you've made bad decisions doesn't make, you, doesn't make you a bad person. 
And that is a huge differentiator. And so rainbows only follow storms. Uh, you cannot have a rainbow without a storm first. We, we are potentially locking up and throwing away the key to these young people who have the chutzpah and the energy to create the, the thing that's driving America, which are small business jobs. Half of all jobs in America, Catherine, Gallup numbers, employees with, with 100 employees or less. Employers with 100 employees or less. Your radio station probably has 100 employees or less. I don't even, I mean, I don't even, I'm just guessing, but that's my guess. Um, 70% of all uh, companies, employers in America, have 500 employees or less. I guarantee your radio station has less than 500 employees. Um, and, uh, uh, and, and there's only 1,000, less than 1,000 companies that employ 10,000 people or more. But in 1974, uh, most of employers were big businesses, and 4% of employees worked at AT&T. The world has changed, literally. Small businesses, entrepreneurs, startups, and shoot-ups are driving the largest economy on the planet. How do we turn this around, Catherine? A million startups a year. That's all. You are doing it, John. We have to say, this is, I mean, obviously, this is, this is well, it's been great talking to you, but I, I do you. want to mention the book again, because people need to go out and get the book and read the, the uh, yeah, How the Poor Can Save Capitalism, Rebuilding the Path to the Middle Class. John Hope Bryan, you can obviously buy this bookstores everywhere, online. One more time, John, where, if anybody is interested, what website or website should we go to? OperationHope.org for the work in Project 5117 and JohnHopeBryant.com. If you're confused about where you can get uh, the book, let's make this book a bestseller. Let's send a message that we are for America. We are for our prosperity. We want everybody rowing in the book, the, the boat, of aspiration. You can take no pleasure in the fact that there's a hole in my end of our boat. We are all in this mess together. Well said. Thanks so much for being on the show this morning. Thank you, Catherine. God bless you. Great to have you. We're going to take a short break. I'm Catherine Zox. I'm your social worker with the microphone. And you're listening to The Catherine Zox Show on VoiceAmericaVariety.com and World Talk Radio. We'll be back in a minute. The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com Now there's a new destination for video content. VoiceAmerica.tv Just like our radio channels and so much more. Voice America Variety, Health and Wellness, Business, Sports, Green Talk, Power Up Motorsports, and 7th Wave Network now have their own video channel components. Plus, check out exclusive programming, including movies, music, educational courses, science and history, current events, and short features. High-definition, premier-quality programs available 24-7. VoiceAmerica.tv If you think you've seen online TV like this before, let us surprise you. There is a species that remains undiscovered by modern science. This species is known by many names, but most commonly known as Bigfoot. Join Todd Standing and Dr. Jeff Meldrum for Bigfoot North, a program that sets out to uncover the species that has eluded modern science, but that does truly exist. Expert and celebrity guests will be on hand to discuss both the scientific evidence and conclusive fact of the species on this planet. Bigfoot North airs live every Wednesday at 5 p.m. Pacific Time, 8 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com. 
You're listening to The Catherine Zox Show. If you'd like to join our conversation this morning, call now. The toll-free number is 866-472-5788. That number again is 866-472-5788. We're back. I'm Catherine Zox. I'm your social worker with the microphone. You're listening to The Catherine Zox Show on VoiceAmericaVariety.com and World Talk Radio. Joining me uh, is my next guest. He is a New York Times bestselling author and philanthropist, Steve Barry. His most recent book is The Lincoln Myth. Uh, he's written several books. Uh, best, uh, he's written, so let me see, he's got uh, 15 million books in print in over 50 countries around the globe. So he's not only, he's an author, a philanthropist, um, and talks specifically about how you can enrich your life and the lives of others by finding what you love and making a difference through philanthropic efforts. Welcome to the show. Nice to have you on this morning, Steve. It's great to be here. Thank you, man. Yeah. Well, it's good to be on. You're on with your social... I'm a social worker with a microphone, so you're going to tell us how we can do this, right? Be philanthropic by following our... Doing what we love, I guess, is what you say. Uh, but first, tell us your story, because, you know, this book, The Lincoln Myth, is just the latest and obviously in a series of books, and you've been able to be successful and then take that success and share it with others. Yeah, this is my 13th novel uh, and the ninth in the, uh, ninth in the Cotton Malone series. So um, my, I started this, the series in 2006, and now we're, we're into, as I said, nine stories with Cotton Malone, my recurring character. I was a... Um, a lawyer for 30 years. I was a trial lawyer, and I started writing in 1990, but it took me 12 years from the day I wrote my first word to the day I sold my first word, and there were 85 rejections over five different manuscripts during that 12-year period. So it was a uh, a very long process for me to get published and for me to make it. And finally, in 2003, I uh, I made it with The Amber Room, and then I followed up with the book a year since then, and I've been very fortunate. The books have grown. Uh, each year and getting uh, audiences grown. We're now in uh, 40 languages in 51 countries, and uh, we're a little higher than 15 million now. We're now up to 18 million books. Uh, so uh, it's been growing and doing very well. So you've always had this writing talent, obviously, but getting it out there is also, that takes another kind of talent, which that took a while, but you press it persevered, and obviously really successful. I mean, that's a, a story that everyone could be, I guess, envious of. Yeah, um, I tell people all the time, I may not know much about writing books, but I'm a world-class expert on rejection, and I, <laughs> I understand that process extremely well, and so it was a, it was a long process for me uh, you know, to make it, but it, it, was, it was difficult at the time. It wasn't very pleasant, but looking back on it now, everything happened in the right sequence that it needed to happen, and everything went the way it should have gone. But at the time, you know, you, you, of course, you want it to happen sooner. Well, you talk about being an expert on rejection. Let, let's kind of let's spend a little bit of time on that because I think a lot of us have that problem or it's an issue. And uh, one of the reasons why many people give up, people who have talent, whether it's writing or in something else, but they can't seem to stomach the rejection, which you were able to do. Well, it's it's a tough thing. I mean, I, it, I didn't have fun doing it. I can assure you right now, it's very difficult. Uh, to deal with, and during that 12 years, I I quit three times. I, I mean, I'm not Superman. I did walk away, but each time, though, that little voice in your head, and that's what a writer has. A writer, or every writer has a little voice in their head, kind of drives you crazy to write. That little voice would would drive me back in there to keep going at it, and and if you hang in there long enough, 
you actually will catch a break one day. And I did. I finally caught a break 12 years after the fact. Something fell my way. And, and it, I would have never caught that break ever if I had not still been there, still plugging away at that time. So it's cliche, but it's really true. You cannot quit. I understand your wife, Elizabeth. Yes. Um, I would imagine that she, and, and you know, I'm just proposing this, but uh, was supportive, or you have to have somebody there with you, or do you? And if she was, how did that fit into your ability to be able to stick with it so that oh, you wound up? I, I was very fortunate. During the time I, I was married, uh, twice during that, that time period, uh, my, uh, my, my uh, previous wife was very supportive. She was very supportive, never a negative word out of her mouth, ever. Uh, Elizabeth came along uh, when Templar Legacy was published in uh, 2005. She came along a third secret, really, in 2005. And she's been there, you know, for uh, uh, 11 of the books, and she's extremely supportive. Um, it, you do need that. You, you, let's put it this way. You at least need someone who's not, who's not unsupportive. Uh, they could be benign. Right, right. And that's benign, okay. is, ben, benign is fine. Benign yeah. is no problem whatsoever. Supportive is even better. But, but non-supportive is destructive because it's a hard enough process as it is and you don't need someone on you. I, was, I have a very peculiar habit, though. I write in the morning, so I write. I'm a morning person, so I would go to the law office you know, at 6.30 in the morning, and I would write from 6.30 to 9. So I really never interfered with anybody. Uh, no one ever really ever saw me write. <laughs> Uh, you know, I was just basically by myself, and it didn't really bother anybody. I, it never took away any time from anybody or anything like that. It was just those those were my three hours each day. And to this day, I still maintain that. But now I go till about 11 o'clock instead of 9 o'clock. So you find that time that you need to write, and hopefully it's a time that doesn't interfere with anything else. Right, so it doesn't take away from people's time, family, or right. friends, or whatever. Right. But it also doesn't take away too much money. It's not that costly to write either, right? No, no not, not at all. It's yeah. It's all, it's all about just sitting down there, time, and working on it. No, writing is a, is a skill you can learn without spending a penny. Right, so New York Times bestselling author, one of the most popular and successful thriller writers, as when I'm going to repeat it again, 15 million books. And by the way, we can go to your website, steveberry.org, and it's uh, B-E-R-R-Y. Um, how, now, can, can we kind of like segue into, all right, very successful uh, you know, now you have um, proven yourself and doing what you love, but then you've decided, okay, now what? 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 You are going to you establish this nonprofit organization called History Matters. Uh-huh. Um, why? Why did? It, how did that come about? Well, Elizabeth and I were traveling all over the country, touring for the books, and we began to notice quite clearly that there's no money for historic preservation anywhere anymore. And this is all over the country. I'm not talking about big places. I'm about little places. There, we have millions and millions of historical artifacts and places all over this country. And there's just no money there to preserve or keep them up anywhere. And we noticed that over and over again. So in 2009, we created History Matters. And it's a way to help communities raise money. And we don't give them money. We help them raise money. And we do it in a variety of ways. Uh, On the tour that we just did, we did three History Matters events at uh, the Edgar Allan Poe House in Baltimore, the James Thurber House in Columbus, and uh, and in the Art Legacy League out in the Quad Cities area. And we did different stuff. We did a dinner. We did a meet and greet. We did uh, a, a, a talk. 
and and Q and A and signings. We do, and then we also taught our writers workshop, which we do. We teach a four hour writers workshop on the craft of writing, and all of those events are charged. You pay to come, and all of the money from those events goes to the projects. Elizabeth and I do not charge to come. We don't charge expenses. We pay our own way to come, and we raise thirty thousand dollars from those three events for those various historical projects. And so far, we've taught around 2,600 students, and we've raised around three-quarters of a million dollars for various historic projects all around the country. And it's just something that we enjoy. We do six to eight of these every year, and we're getting ready to do our first international one in Canada in August on Prince Edward Island, which is going to be pretty cool. So, so, well, Steve, I mean, your books are about history, and you kind of, you know, I guess, focus in on history in a slightly different way, or a very creative way. So this is your passion, your love. But why does history matter? You know, I I, I think this is something, I actually talk about this a lot. I think that particularly Americans have a terrible sense of history and don't see it as mattering for whatever reason, just as kind of a national kind of attitude, I would say. Well, I mean, so, it's very clear from the old saying, and, and it's a saying that's very true, uh, those who do not know history are doomed to repeat it, and that's exactly what will happen. If you don't understand where we came from and what we did and the mistakes we made or the things we did right, you're going to repeat them again. You, you can't help it. Human, it's human nature. Where we came from, who we are matters. Everything that we've done in the past matters because you're going to do them over and over again. Those things are going to come back up, and you have to learn. Imagine if you lived your life every day with no knowledge or memory of anything you did yesterday. Nothing. Each day is brand new, brand spanking new, and you get to start over each day and make the same mistakes and the same things you made the day before because you don't remember what you did. That's that's why history matters. That's why it matters. You can see how futile and how how difficult that would be. Well, that's the same thing if we don't pay attention to history. So that's why it's it's always mattered to me. It's very interesting stuff where we came from because it definitely points to where we're going. What kind of response do you get? I mean, you're talking to students, young students, uh, I would imagine college students, you know, very different age groups. So I'd be curious as to what kind of a response that you get from, say, students to adults, uh, and you're going into small towns, large towns. Yeah. Um, yeah. yeah, we get a, a, a very much universal positive response, but what we want to see from them is action. You know, part of the, part of the mission of History Matters is to educate uh, on the importance of historical preservation, because what we try to convey to people is if you're waiting for someone to come here and save your historical artifact, it's never going to happen. So you're going to have to figure it out, how to save it yourself. Uh, historic preservation is a local matter. It's entirely up to you locally to make it happen. And we, we, we try to convey that message, and part of our, our mission is we go into a community and we, we try to get that message out. And we leave there, yeah, hopefully, with people feeling that way. We we just did the very first History Matters event, uh, very first fundraiser for the Quad Cities area for the Art Legacy League. And we left there, you know, they had a good feeling about it. They had a good feeling of what they needed to do to continue their efforts locally. And they now they now get that message that this has got to be done by us. We're going to make this happen. So it's our just it's just our small little way of trying to help and give back. 
Yeah, and there, so now you're going to go, what was the reason for going to Canada? I mean, you, I'm sure there's a lot more territory to cover, like here in the United States. For instance. Well, they, well, they asked, and that's what happens. People ask us to come. They go to the website. You could go to steveberry.org and click on History Matters. They send us an email. We get maybe 15, 20 a year. We try to do about eight projects each year, but if we can't do it that year, we try to do it the next year. We try to do just about everything. It depends. We're a little peculiar about what we do because we want to make sure we're dealing with an organization that gets it, that this is about raising money for the historic project. It's about putting a a sincere, solid effort into it and to make a difference because I'm paying my own way to come there, and I'm giving up several days of time to come there, and I want to make sure that it's going to be a productive use of everything. So we are a little peculiar about what we do and who we do, and we have folks who assist uh, the local entity in putting together the event and, and how to organize it and assemble it. So we, uh, it's, it's a sort of a partnership and a joint effort that we do. Yeah, so in other words, you're, they're vetting you, I guess, but you're vetting them as well. Exactly. Well, yeah, what would you say, Steve, was probably the most, if there is one, that was most interesting to you or had the most surprises? Or, um, well, the one that know, surprised one... me the most was one we did early on because we did it and I raised $5,000, which I didn't think was a lot of money. And I, I apologize. I told them, I'm sorry we, we didn't, weren't able to put together and I'm sorry we couldn't do it. But the, the people there were ecstatic. And I couldn't figure it out. And I said, well, why are you so excited? They said, because you don't understand what just happened here today. Our local museum, which is what we were there to sponsor, is a 19th century Victorian mansion. That's a beautiful, it was a beautiful place. And it's falling apart because it has a hole in the roof. And the $5,000 is going to plug the hole. And that will save the building. So I learned very quickly right then that a little bit of money goes a long way in historic preservation. And so I never, I never downplayed it anymore. And that, that was a big lesson that day. So you don't have to replace the whole building. It doesn't have to be no. this gigantic project. You can no. start with put, yeah, patching up the hole. Just stop the water damage. That will give them the time they need in order to deal with all of the other stuff. They just didn't have $5,000 to fix the roof. Now they did. The roof was fixed. The building's still there to this day and doing fine. Good story. All right, now, what about each one of us individually? Because you really you are specific about that, and you have advice in terms of, like, the uh, someone who's listening to the show and says, you know, I'd like to do something, not necessarily history matters. That's not my area of expertise or my interest or love or passion. So it has to be something that sure. I'm passionate about or that I love, or how do we... Right. It, yeah. That's exactly right. You find what you are interested in. Because I tell people all the time when I teach writing, you know, writing what you know is horrible advice. It's terrible advice. Write what you love. If what you know and what you love are the same thing, great. But if they're not, find what you love. Same with this. Give us an example of that. Not writing about just what you know. You have to know and love it or at least love it. Or like me, I was a lawyer. I was a trial lawyer. I defended people from murder, rape, you name it. I did thousands and thousands of trials, tens of thousands of divorces. And I was an expert at that. I knew how to do all of that. But I did not want to write about that. I did not love it enough. I loved action, history, secrets, conspiracies, and international settings. And that's what I loved to write. So I didn't want to write legal thrillers. I wanted to write what I loved. So I, I tell people all the time that focus on that. And same with, your, with these outside efforts. You've got to find something you love. What are you passionate about? What is it you love? It may not be something you know a lot about. But believe me, if you love it, you'll figure it out. 
you'll get the information because you you are it interests you it 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 really just draws you and that's what I did I just found what I loved and I focused on it and so that's what I tell people all the time so simplest advice and then then you just have to sit down and figure out innovative ways to make it work and that just takes time and, and when we think of philanthropy we think our we think of bill gates or some, you know we or somebody who has lots of money to invest or to give away or whatever and what you're saying is each that one is, of us has the capacity to do that that is the smallest that. percentage of philanthropy there exists the guys that write the big checks the the vast 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 majority of philanthropists are people who give their time they give their time and they give their energy. That's what the that's what makes it work. When we do History Matters events, I mean, there are people there who have given you know six or eight months of their time to put all of that together and make it happen. They've worked on that every day, not for money, not for anything, but for the love of what they're doing. And we've seen hundreds and hundreds of people who do this. Time is much more precious and much more valuable than money. Don't you need both, though? You do need both. You do need both, but. You 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 need the you need the first to get the people involved to make this happen. Now you're not going to get money unless you get people involved who want to put the time in in order to generate the money, and that's what happens with History Matters. They 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 put the time in to generate the money they need for the historic preservation projects because you're to find those people to write those large checks to you are are they're tough to find. And they're, they're almost impossible to find these days. And there's so many people vying for that money. You know, your chances of, win, of getting that money are slim to none. But your chances of actually going out and raising money is very good. But you need people to make that happen. Yeah. So you have to determine what your own talents are, I guess. You kind of really have to take a look at yourself. Sure. What, it may be speaking, it may be writing, it may be what? Gather, be, you have the ability to gather people together, and what you don't have, then you have to kind of align yourself with others so that the you people can... people who do. That's right, exactly right. You find what you're good at. I, I'm, I'm pretty good at, at, at conveying things and... and and, and conveying information and, and, and persuading. Because well, that's I was 30 years of lawyering. That's right. That's <laughs> right. And so I found what my talent was, and that's what I offer. That's what I bring to the table is, is, is those. And then other people bring to the table organizational skills, and other people bring to the table marketing skills and publicity skills. And you find all of those things, and everybody just does a little bit, and you put it all together and you make it happen. Well, as I understand it, you also found a mentor, uh, some one of your fellow writers. So, how important was that? Well, I learned from other folks. You know, uh, David Baldacci has a great foundation, Wish You Well Foundation, that deals with literacy, and I learned a lot from studying his foundation of how he does things. So, yes, I, there was a lot there that I gathered from the way he did things. And, and when we created History Matters, uh, we spent some time with David, and we learned about how he put things together. And then we assembled our own way, and we put our own little spin on it. So he was he was in your particular your particular case he was the one who was the mentor. Yeah, he 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 was the one that that we that we learned from. Yeah, absolutely. He'd been doing it a lot longer than I had. You know, and by the way, don't try to reinvent the wheel. I mean, you know, the wheel's already working. It works great. Just 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 get the best wheel you can to do what you need done. You don't have to reinvent it. And that's what we did. Elizabeth went up, and she spent several days with uh, the folks at his foundation. They opened up everything. They explained everything and answered a thousand questions. She came back, and we were ready to go. And then we put History Matters together, and, and it's a learning process. We start, and we, we, we evolve. 
and we learn how to do things. And we just, you know, it's it, history matters today is a lot different than it was in 2009. We've gotten a lot uh, better at what we do. What about disasters? Have you had any major disasters that you, or that you would define as a disaster on some project? Well, the only disasters would have been when we had to cancel a project when they when the when the interest wasn't very good, and this happened. Uh, this has only happened one time, uh, really two times, early on, and this is before we began to get a little more peculiar about who we do business with. Uh, and we look, kind of learned some lessons from those experiences that you know we just can't do these anywhere and everywhere. They have to be really thought through carefully, and we have to be more particular about the, the folks that we deal with and, and make sure that there's a degree there of, uh, that they understand that what, we're, what we're up to and how we put it together. So we changed the way we did things, and we haven't had a problem since then. Um, all of the events that we've done in the re- recent years have done very well. Is there any kind of a consistency in these different places that you go where you can sort of identify those who are kind of try to put the kibosh on what you're doing that there's no you don't no. you don't really figure you just you, what you do is you you talk to them in the beginning and you explain the process and you can tell pretty early on if they get it or not if you know and and red flags can come up pretty quickly and we try to screen those out fairly fast but the the people who get it like the three we just did all three of those got it they were on top of it. They they knew what to do. They worked it well. They they went after their sponsors. They 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 did exactly what you needed to do, and they were all on top of it. And we check in with them regularly, and we're getting regular updates, and everything's progressing well. We can see it's coming. Now we check in with someone four months out, and they haven't really done any planning or anything. We know we're in for a problem, you know. And so we begin to to head those off early on now, because as I said, I pay to go. And I'm, I'm paying money to be there, and I'm giving up something even more precious, time, because that's time I need to be working on a book. I'm giving that up to come there, and I want to make sure that that's a productive use of everybody's time. Mm-hmm. So it's, it's a, obviously it's a very serious project, yes, and your time to write your books or to work on another project where history does matter. Or right, are... we, could go to, we could go to another. We only do six or eight of these a year. And so we, we we pick them very carefully, and we try to maximize it out. And and so far, you know, we we we've done very well with the new model. The the people in Canada contacted us and said we'd love for you to come, and they laid out what they would like to do. I've never been that that part of the world before, and I said that would be excellent. Let's do it. We've been wanting to go international, and this is our first effort at going that way. Well, I was born and raised in Maine, and Prince Edward Island is beautiful, beautiful country and great people. So I think, it's, to me, it sounds like a good place to go, or at least for the first uh, project out of the country. Yeah. Uh, we only have about a minute left, so let's uh, I'll mention your website, website again, steveberry.org. Everything's yeah. there about me, the books. The Lincoln Myth is out now. It's in stores everywhere. and Give it a try and check it out. Yeah. It's going to be another New York Times bestseller. It already is. It, it already number, is. Number number four on the hardcover list and number three on the ebook list. Fantastic. Great. Well, it's been a pleasure talking to you today, Steve. Um, very inspirational, I must say. I have to think about what my talents are, and I can kind of figure out how to take this philanthropy thing in the direction that you have. So, No problem. I, yeah, I appreciate great. that. Thank you. Thank you for having me. 
Steve Barry, uh, author of The Lincoln Myth, among many other books, and uh, philanthropist. Uh, I'm Catherine Zox, your social worker with a microphone. You've been listening to The Catherine Zox Show on VoiceAmericaVariety.com and World Talk Radio. Hope you have a great week, and we'll see you next Wednesday. We hope you have enjoyed today's episode of The Catherine Zox Show. You can listen live every Thursday morning at 7 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America channel. Want to know more about Catherine? Visit her website at www.catherinezox.com. Be sure to join us next week for more interviews and great conversations with Catherine Zox. Thanks again for listening to the preceding program brought to you on the Voice America Variety Channel. For more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericavariety.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the preceding program are strictly those of the hosts or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by Voice America Talk Radio Network its staff and management.